Thanks for checking out Unedited Life's podcast. If you are finding value here, I would encourage you to partner with us financially. Simply go to uneditedlife.org and click the Give button in the lower right corner. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, you know what? We're not even going to allow our eyes to survey anything this morning, to look around and take notice of anything. Right now, we are choosing to fix our eyes on you face to face. You invite us to set our faces like flint before you. And that's what we're choosing. To be set on you. To lock eyes with yours. To feel your heartbeat. And your pleasure. So we thank you for what it is that you're doing in and through us. We thank you for the the many invitations that you've extended to us. And we're just thankful to be yours. Glad to be yours. Amen. All right. We are continuing our Holy Spirit series because at the end of last week, it just didn't feel like we were done. You know, sometimes it just feels like the book is still laid open and there's more to investigate. So we're going to stop making plans (laughs) and just continue to say yes to what it is that God has outlined for us in this this season that we're in. And so this, this morning, I want to look at what it means to be indivisible. We are joined to God through Christ. And we certainly are indivisible. We need to start looking at ourselves as being indivisible. We are one, joined together in union. And there is absolutely nothing, not even high winds, right, that could uproot us from being in him. There's nothing. Now, our mind can play tricks on us and tell us another tale, right? That's where, that's where um, we get the idea that we have been separated from God is because of our minds wanting to tell us a whole different story of how things went down. But it was never God's plan that we believed that we were separated from him because his intent that we would always see ourselves as an extension of who he is, right? Little gods walking the earth. Thank you for your agreement, Lily. Okay, so... To, to look at this, for whatever reason, the threshing floor has been what's on my mind. And I've been wrestling with this all weekend because I taught it on Friday in my life. Well, made mention of it anyway. And, um, but I just really felt like I was like, stay there. I want you to stay there. I want you to dive into it a little bit deeper so that you can gain better understanding of what it is that I'm doing. So if you haven't already investigated what threshing floors were, I invite you to do that on your own and not just take my word for it, okay? Go do some investigating on your own. Open up your Bibles. Do some research. Use Google, right? Just start 
just start by looking at the definition of threshing. Do some historical studies on what it was that, that the people of that time did. They, they created threshing floors for harvest time. And it was actually a really neat practice <clears throat> that they did. Now today, it's not the same because we have machines. It's just not the same. But then it was somewhat of a violent process. And I think that I have had in my mind that it was, it was separating the, the, like the weeds, right? The, the wheat from the tares. And that's not actually what was happening. What was happening was separating the grain, right? From the rest, uh, from the shaft, right? So there's the, the long part of the wheat and then there's just the grain heads. And that's what was being separated was the good from God, right? Can we look at it that way? We've talked about this at length. There's a difference between good and God. I found that out the hard way during a time of my life when I was attempting to promote unity above obedience, right? And we know full well that it is better to obey than to sacrifice. We love to throw around things like God said, but then we so easily say, oh, I'm going to put God said over here and I'm going to go pursue this, right? God said, Angie, go. And I said, God, union. And he said, you're straddling the line of obedience. There's a difference between good and God. Yes? And that's what's happening on the threshing floor is they're separating. That wheat needed the shaft to grow and produce. It's no longer needed. Once it hits the threshing floor, God begins to separate it. And I want to look at a story that tells us a little bit more about this, because I find it fascinating. I was talking to John about this yesterday. In fact, John and I came down here yesterday, and <laughs> we had to go to the grocery store, and we had to run these two around. And um, But in the middle of all of that, I was like, I need to go to, this, to the church. And he's like, what are we doing at the church? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to be there for a time. I had nothing to do here. Now, I watered the flowers unnecessarily, but I watered the flowers and I piddled around and did this and that, made a list of the things that needed to be cleaned this morning. But mostly, I just enjoyed being here. And while we were here, I started to ask John questions about what he might know about threshing floors. And in the middle of this conversation, he's like, hey, did you know that the temple was actually built on a threshing floor? And I had that knowledge in the back of my mind, but I was so glad that he was willing to like pull it out and be like, look, right? And in the middle of that conversation, right over here, over here, Zane, it's over here, because John was sitting over there, he saw this flash, almost like it broke the atmosphere. And so what I'm telling you is, is that right now there is some, there is so much supernatural activity all around us that if our eyes aren't open, we're going to miss it all. Because all we were doing 
was talking about the threshing floor and immediately angels of harvest appear. Right? I mean, wow. This is pretty neat. Okay. So anyway, I thought I would look up the story of, of how the temple came to be built on the threshing floor. And we're just going to go to 2 Samuel 2. Again, if you brought your passion tra translation, you're going to miss out. It's fine. 2 Samuel 24, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again. And he stirred up David against them to say. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here because you could read this the wrong way. And we have done this historically. We've read scripture the wrong way and we put the anger on God's shoulders. Who was mad here? David, God's upset with Israel, right? But David's the one that's stirred to anger, right? And we're talking about actionable anger. So this is what David does. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. Immediately, David sends out an, or an order, right? He, he acts upon his anger. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. There's going to be a lot of words Angie can't say, but it's fine. And register the troops so I can know their number. He takes a census, right? Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are while my Lord the king looks on. But why does my Lord the king want to do this? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror, I don't know, south of the town in the middle of the valley, and then proceeded toward Gad and Jazir. Now listen, I could have got real smart and looked up pronunciation, but who really cares? That's not the point. Verse 6, they went to Gilead and to the land of the Hittites and continued on to Dan and around to Sidon. They went to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Afterward, they went to, to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. When they had gone through the whole land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. Nine months and 20 days. That's a lot of time. You can have a baby in that amount of time. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Nine months and 20 days, Joab gave the king the total of the registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. That's a lot. That's a lot of armed men. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. Isn't this interesting? I, th I think that this is, is so interesting that what David did was send somebody out to count. But do you remember what his servant said to him before he actually followed through? I pray that my master see his troops, what was it, doubled, 
I can't remember, but you get it. Like multiplied. Let's use the word multiplied. What was he, what was he introducing? What was he bringing to the table at that moment? David, open your eyes. It doesn't matter what the true count is of armed men in your military. God will supply all your needs. But David followed through and needed a physical count. And that's how he sinned against God, was by not trusting. You guys, I don't understand how we've gotten to where we are. Why we think it's okay to mistrust or distrust God. To just put that aside and be like, yeah, I heard you, but I'm going to put it over here. Yeah, I know I'm carrying the word of the Lord, but I'm going to put it over here for now because good, right? Because that's what we're talking about is, is the separation between good and God, right? Now listen, in verse 11, when David got up in the morning, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer, just means prophet. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them and I will do it for you. So Gad went to David, told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land to flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you or to have a plague in your land three days? Now consider carefully what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. David answered Gad, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great. But don't let me fall into human hands. What a response. I mean, one moment he's not trusting God to provide all that he needs. And he's taking matters into his own hands. And the next he's being presented with three outcomes for his inability to trust God in that moment. And his response is, let us fall into the Lord's hands. I trust his mercy. Oh, my gosh. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. And from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Now, you've got to remember, this is just men. Who knows what the children and women were among this number? 70,000? And we could look at this and think like, oh my gosh, God is just such a big meanie. I don't understand. Why must he smite his people? Right? But in and through history with God, it's God showing up saying, I can do more with little than you can with your great. So he's proving to David, there's no reason for you not to trust me. I will reduce you by 70,000 armed men and will still be capable of more than you were going to be with 13 million. Wow. Right? Okay, so they're under a plague. 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. 
But the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. I don't really know how to say that name. I'm sure it's beautiful. But the angel was on the threshing floor when God told him, stop, it's enough. You look suspicious. <laughs> when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, Look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's name. Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded. Aranu, whatever, what is called Marani, looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. He said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. He said to David, My lord, the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering, and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arani, gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, May the lord your God accept you. The king answered him, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I, I, I don't know if you are feeling the weight of that. David is on a threshing floor. God has stopped the violence. He's put a stop to it. He says, enough. And then David says, let it fall on me and mine. And the command that God gives him is, go set up an altar, David. Go set up an altar. And, and, and the altar, the space for the altar is offered him for free. And he says, this, you guys, this line right here, it gets, I mean, like, I'm dead. I, right? Like, do you feel that way? Like, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. See, there's a great cost on the threshing floor. There's a great cost in this space he has us right now. It will cost you everything. And yet, it'll be offered to you for free. I can't wrap my mind around this. It's not cost in the way that we measure cost. I must die. For him to live fully as me, I must die. I have to stop saying, yes, I've got the word of the Lord, but it can wait. Because right now, 
good is comfortable. But the word of the Lord will cost me everything. It will cost me everything. You know full well that a year ago at this time, because I shared it with you, that the Lord asked me, are you willing to give up your reputation? Which I thought was silly because I don't really have much of a reputation to begin with. You know? You know, I feel like that. Like, But I don't view myself the same way that God does. Right? I still see myself as little old me. But what he's asking of me is beyond little old me. And it's going to cost me everything. It's going to cost my comfort with good. I'm good with being a good little Christian girl. I was good at being good. Anybody else? Like, I'm, oh, I know. Yeah. I'm good at being good. I actually will have to even go further that I was proud of being good. I have very honorary brothers on each side of me. But I was good. Right? I mean, like, I caused my parents no trouble because I'm good. Listen, I was the good girl who would go to slumber parties. The other people would sneak out and go do dangerous things, and I stayed. I'm the one that stayed. I had to hide from the parents that would come walking into the room because I was the one that stayed because I'm good. But see, there comes a time when good isn't good enough. Yeah, I had the name good Angie compared to bad Angie because we were both Angies. I was good Angie. Which I can't really say I walked around like proud of that because I was like, well, I don't get it. Like, anyway, that doesn't matter. Yeah, let's let's say that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, you threw me way off. But there comes a time when there's a cost where you have to deny this good version of yourself. And I'm not asking, I'm not suggesting that God invites us into some kind of weird rebellion. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a difference between good and God. I could continue to live my life as the shaft, right? Right? And never actually get the taste of the grain. It's the difference between good and God. And that's why he has us on the threshing floor right now. Because we are riddled with being good. The church has taught us to be good. Right? We've equated righteousness to being good enough. Ouch, right? That's what we've said. That's what we've been taught. We've been taught, like, just be good enough. Appear good. Well, what did Jesus say about that? Do you remember? Do you remember many of Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees? Well, I see, boys, that you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but what's going on the inside isn't actually cutting it, right? See, we've done the same thing. We've built our churches in this Western culture on this facade of goodness. 
And it's a false righteousness because what Jesus is requiring of us is that we will give up being good to become like him. See, good is still tied to the wrong tree. And I know that that, ah, that doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right for those of us that have been taught to appear a certain way. But even our own goodness is still the wrong fruit. Because as long as we are comfortable with being good, we will never taste of what it means to be possessed by Holy Spirit. We'll always be pulled back to being good enough. And so what God is asking of us is that we give up. That's the cost, you guys. It's the cost is appearing good. When he's saying, Angie, are you willing to give up your reputation? Are you willing to be misunderstood? Right? Are you willing to go all in? Because the people that, that, that God used, even in the Old Testament, appeared foolish. Absolutely foolish. They gave up everything. We have to understand what it is that he's doing right now. We are all lying on a threshing floor. Look, look what happened with the threshing floor that God said, David, go build an altar. Altar turned into the temple. And if you have not read what went into building the temple, I invite you to go back. The detail, the detail that was involved in building this temple is stunning. It it was probably at its time the most stunning building that had ever been erected. The queen of Sheba was so taken by the style that she brought treasure. It provoked a royal exchange in her. She looked and she saw and is provoked. I must offer something. Isn't it interesting? It began as an offering ground. And what we need to understand is what does a burnt offering actually look like? What is a burnt offering and what is a fellowship or peace offering, right? Because that's what David did that day. He offered a burnt offering and a peace offering. A burnt offering had to be that the entire animal was burnt. The entirety of the animal. And often it took hours, hours for this animal to be completely consumed by the fire. What is the point in a burnt offering? It will cost you everything. It's holy devotion. I am yours. I'm completely yours. Consume me. It's severing the ties to good and saying I'm all in. I'm all the way yours. I will no longer 
hear what you're saying and set it aside. I will become the word of the Lord. We are obsessed with hearing his voice, but we refuse to live it out. Repent. Seriously. It's old. We have to stop living this way. Become the word of the Lord. Don't just be hearers. That's what it means. When he says, don't be hearers, only be doers of the word. Become the word. Become what he says. We have to stop being comfortable with disobedience. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. What does that mean to us? What does that mean to us? We can look at this instance, what just happened in this story. David knew full well he wasn't supposed to do it. And lost 70,000 men. What are you doing right now in your life? that equates to sacrifice. You need to be, we, we do, you guys, and I am, I, I am, I'm preaching in a mirror right now. What is it that measures up to sacrifice rather than obedience in my life? Righteousness will cost everything. On the threshing floor, he's separating. And if you listen to how it was separated, it's violent. There's a violence about separate. The, the, the wheat is trampled. It's, it's trampled. It takes oxen. to pound the grain loose. Do you feel like you're being trampled right now? Do you feel like you can't make any headway right now? Great! <laughs> right? Do you feel like all you're surrounded with is angst? Great! That's great. That's really good news because that's what it's going to take to separate the grain from the shaft. Okay, let's look at another part of scripture. Oh, did I tell you? Okay, I told you about the burnt offering, but let me tell you about the fellowship or peace offering. It was actually a, a meal shared between God and the one bringing the offering, which I think is pretty cool. They gave the parts of the animal to God that cannot be consumed. Because God was pretty serious about that, right? Pretty serious. Like, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat that. There were a lot of rules on what they could and could not eat. So they gave the parts of the animal that wasn't edible to God. And then God shared the rest of the meal with them. 
You could also call it a, a friendship offering where God came and ate. Ah! This is so fascinating to me. He's asking that we be completely consumed by the fire of the Holy Spirit and that we would also eat with him. Wow. Anybody have a wow? I just, that's all I have. <sighs> um, let's read Matthew 3. And I read this on Friday, so if this feels like it's on repeat, well, it is. Matthew 3, and we're going to start in 11. And this is John the Baptist introducing Jesus, right? What an introduction. I think that it's, it's a, a phenomenal introduction. And, and I also think that we have vastly misunderstood what John was getting at, but I'll read it. But there is coming a man after me who is more powerful than I am, in fact, I'm not even worthy enough to pick up his sandals. He will submerge you. Say submerge. He will submerge you into union with the spirit of holiness and with raging fire. When I titled this this morning, just because it's fun to title things. I love naming things. I got that from great-grandpappy Adam. I love naming things. And, and I heard indivisible. And then I was like, that has nothing to do with my teaching. And God said, it has everything to do with your teaching. They actually changed it. And then God was like, could you please? <laughs> right? So there was a moment where I had to agree with what it was that he was presenting. And right here where he says that he will submerge you into union with the spirit of holiness what we need to understand is that we are indivisible. Can't divide us. We can't be divided from him. Complete submersion into the spirit of holiness and with a raging fire. Just like the burnt offering had to be complete, so do you get burned. You guys, I can feel this ache. Just, it's just like this pulsating ache in the atmosphere of wanting to completely submerge us in holiness and to burn us alive. And I know that sounds really disgusting, but it's beautiful when you're thinking of it in terms of Holy Spirit, where he wants to completely, completely consume me. He wants all of me. He wants all of you. He wants to consume us. He comes with a winnowing fork in his hands and he comes to his threshing floor to sift what is worthless from what is pure. Okay. 
So we just spent a little bit of time of laying out that this shaft was actually good, right? It's what helped produce the grain. Yes? If you were like me, I already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it again because I think it's really important because I think that we get the wrong thing in our mind that this is not about wheat and tares. This is about wheat separating what was good from the grain. And now he's calling it worthless. See, so your ability to be good in the eyes of the Lord is actually worthless because the only goodness he's interested in is his own. Our goodness can't stand. It can help produce, right? I'm not saying don't be good. I'm saying that it, it, it serves a purpose, but then we must let go. Let it serve a purpose, but let go. Don't hold tightly to being good in last season. Because good 10 years ago isn't actually serving you. Now it's hindering you. Let it go. Allow the fire to consume you so that the only thing that is left is what is pure. You don't have time for worthless. Can we agree to that? Like, we do not have time for worthless. What is worthless in his eyes, we must turn our backs on. Yes? He is ready to sweep out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his granary. But the straw he will burn up with a fire that cannot be extinguished. See, we need to stop like being afraid of this. We're so afraid of his fire. We're so afraid of being found out. Get found out! Right? Let's get found out. Let's be able to stand pure before him. He's just burning up the stuff that's not serving you anymore. That's all. It's just the things that no longer complement who you are in him. Again, I'm not saying that it has never served you or complimented who you are. It's just not anymore. Can we agree to that? Okay. So that's what Jesus was coming. He came with a winnowing fork and a whole lot of fire. Let's read Malachi 4, 1 through 3. Again, Malachi is just introducing what's to come. He says, count on it. The day is coming, raging like a forest fire. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like stove wood, burned to a crisp, nothing left but scorched earth and ash and black day. But for you sunrise. The sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, healing radiating from its wings. You will be bursting with energy like colts, frisky and frolicking, and you'll tromp on the wicked. There'll be nothing but ashes under your feet on that day. God of the angel armies says so. 
Would you love that? But for you, sunrise. The sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, healing radiating from its wings. Who's looking forward to seeing that manifest? I am desperate to see that manifest. The radiance of the sun shining down and healing dropping from the wings of the Lord. That's what I am longing for. But it will cost you everything. Which is why he has us on the threshing floor in the first place. Count the cost. It'll cost you who you think you are. He's looking for a people who will allow him to be who he wants to be. We have to become those who will obey, who will become the word of the Lord, who will stop sitting along the sidelines. We got a whole lot of pausing in his presence going on. John and I have been reading Psalms. And you know, if you read Psalms, it's like pause in his presence, pause. In. And there's parts where it's like, why did we pause there? You know, like I'm like, what? Why? But see, for some of us, we paused and we never actually hit play again. There's enough pausing in his presence going on. Okay. Like, I think he's like, let's run in my presence now, okay? Get up, get going. Become the word of the Lord. You guys, I'm, I, this is, I'm so serious. As serious as I know how to be right now. We have to stop being hearers only. We, we hear it and we love to talk about, oh, well, the Lord said this. But then we let everything else crowd in. Everything else. Oh, well, this presented itself, so I'm going to go and do this because the word of the Lord, I guess, just wasn't good enough. What are we doing? I don't understand what we're doing. We must become the word of the Lord. If he's told you to do something or that you are something, be it, do it. It's just not okay to sit around doing nothing anymore. Become. Okay, I want to go and read. Lisa saved, Lisa saved this morning because I left my copy of the Passion Translation at home on accident, and she just happened to bring hers. Thank you, Lisa. Everybody say thank you, Lisa. Thank you for thanking her. And she even let me make marks in hers. <laughs> That's a real true friend. Because <laughs> some people hate marks in their things. Okay, 
we're going to go to Ruth chapter three. And let me just, let me re-familiarize yourself, you with what's going on in this book. So Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner and she has married an Israelite, a man who was born in Bethlehem. And her mother-in-law is Naomi, and Naomi's husband and Naomi's two sons, even one who was married to Ruth, they died. And upon their death, Naomi says, I've got to go back home. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. And Ruth and the other unnamed daughter-in-law, did she have a name? All of a sudden, I can't remember. Anyway, there were two daughter-in-laws. And Naomi said, go back to your country. And they were like, no, no, we're staying with you. I said, go back to your country. And part of me wonders if Naomi, if this was like some kind of a protective measure for them because they're foreigners. They don't belong where she's going. There's actually not space for them where she's going, right? Like foreigners weren't really that welcome. Talk about exclusive. So the one daughter-in-law said, okay, I will return to my people. But Ruth is like, woman, where you go, I go. And your God will become my God. What a thing to say. See, for Ruth, the threshing floor started in that moment. In that moment when she's like, no, I'm giving up who I am to become. Who I'm destined to be. This is big. And we don't give these kinds of stories the credit that's due them. Right? This would be, this would be like you going to a foreign country and saying, I will never consider myself American again. That's what Ruth is saying. I am stepping in and I am becoming your people. I am putting myself under the provision of your God. Now, what we don't understand is that this is all completely foreign to Ruth. This isn't her God. She has a different God completely, a different culture of belief. This is completely different. And here she is laying herself down on the threshing floor that she knows nothing about. That is counting the cost. That is dying. Ruth found the threshing floor before she ever even knew what it was. That's pretty remarkable. Okay, so, so then they get there. And, and Ruth needs to go and, and try and, and make a way for she and Naomi. And Naomi sends her out to, to follow some of the harvesters, the workers in the harvest field. Well, Boaz, who is 
a relative of Naomi's family, invites her, come be with the female workers. Like he wants her safe. Immediately he sees her and he recognizes her work ethic and her willingness to step in and really live as Naomi's child, a child of Bethlehem. He recognizes this. It must have been just exuding from her that she'd given up everything. She's known as the Moabite, but she's not seen as the Moabite. There's a difference. What are you becoming right now? People might have knowledge of where you've come from, but who are you? So Boaz invites her in even closer, right? Like she's already in, but now she's in, in. So this... It's four chapters. Please go read it. Please. I'm begging you. Go read it. It's absolutely beautiful. But we're going to jump to the part. We're going to jump to the good part. We're going to start in chapter three, verse six. She's already known, right? She's already known by Boaz. There are sparkles all over this book. Sorry. Um, that evening, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did all her mother-in-law had told her to do. Naomi is like the perfect matchmaker. She's like, woman, you must get married because I need some grandchildren. That evening, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did all her mother-in-law had told her to do. After his evening meal, Boaz was in a good mood. He went to lie down at the far end of the grain pile and fell fast asleep. You see, because Naomi said, don't bother the man until he's had plenty to drink and uh, plenty to eat. And she did just as Naomi instructed. He went down, he went to lie down at the far end of the grain pile and fell fast asleep. Ruth quietly tiptoed over to him, uncovered his feet and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz was startled and he awoke. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? Boaz asked. I am Ruth, your servant girl. You know, you know. She answered, spread the corner of your garment over me because you are a close relative by marriage. One who is my kinsman redeemer. I want to stop right here and draw your attention to the fact that he is sleeping on the threshing floor. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, sleeps there to protect what is his. Now, he is a type and shadow of Jesus. And I, I understand the pain of being on the threshing floor. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there with you. I'm just asking that you stop wiggling. The kinsman redeemer is sleeping on the threshing floor. He is a fierce protector of what is his. I don't think you understand the fierceness of his protection, the, the measure that he is willing to go to protect what is his. See, there's two types of violence going on on the threshing floor. There's the beating of you, right? And then there's the protection 
that's being offered up. And this is where he's the lion, okay? Like, this is where he's the lion, willing to swallow up anything that's coming at what is his. Please better understand the violence of the lion of Judah. He's willing to fiercely protect to keep anything out. Let's read what happens next. Boaz said, Dear woman, may Yahweh bless you for this act of kindness you are showing me exceeds the kindness you have shown to Naomi. You didn't search for a young man to marry, either rich or poor. My daughter, don't worry. I promise to do everything you ask because everyone knows you're a brave woman of noble character. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's not like they they spent a whole lot of time together. He just, he could see who she was. It's true that I am a kinsman redeemer, but you have a, a closer kinsman redeemer than I. Stay here tonight. And I will protect you. In the morning, we'll see if he's willing to redeem you. If he does, great, let him. But if he refuses to redeem you, then I promise as surely as Yahweh lives that I will. So sleep here until morning. So Ruth stayed near Boaz's feet that night. She awoke before it was light enough for anyone to recognize her. Boaz thought, no one must know that a woman visited me at the threshing floor. Scandalous. As Ruth was about to leave, Boaz said to her, here, Bring me the cloak you're wearing and hold it open. As she held it open, Boaz poured six measures of barley into it. He then helped place it on her head to carry, and she went back to Bethlehem. When Ruth returned to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked her, How did it go, my dear daughter? How did Boaz receive you? Ruth told Naomi everything that he did for her. She added, Boaz gave me all this barley saying, you must not go home empty-handed without a gift for your mother-in-law. Ah, you guys, we could like read into this all day long, (laughs) right? Remember the temple was built on the threshing floor? The provider provided? He's not only saying, you're mine, I accept you. He's saying, here, take some plenty back. Ah, it's just too good. Where was I? Oh, uh, verse 18. Naomi answered, my daughter, wait here until you see what happens. Boaz will not rest until he has finished doing what he promised he would do today. Chapter four. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the city gate and sat down when the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. Boaz called to him. Come over here, friend. Sit down with me. We have some business to attend to. So the man went over and he sat down. Then Boaz invited 10 men at the city council and said, please sit down here with us. After they were seated, Boaz turned to the kinsman redeemer and said, sir, Naomi has returned from the country of Moab and she's selling the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it if you want. We can make it official in the presence of those here and in the presence of the elders of our people. As the kinsman and redeemer, you have the first right of refusal. So redeem it if you choose to. But if not, tell me so I will know as I am next in line. The man replied, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz added, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
Therefore, it will be your responsibility to father a child in order to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. This is fascinating. At this, the kinsman redeemer balked and said, in that case, I'm not able to redeem it for myself without risking my own inheritance. Take my purchase option of redemption yourself, for I can't do it. Have I mentioned the difference between good and God? He's putting his own inheritance above the inheritance that he would have gained as the kinsman redeemer, but he didn't have the character. See, what happens when we shelf the word of the Lord and we don't become the word of the Lord? Our character is at stake, and we won't rightly respond in the moment that inheritance is presented before us because we think we are our own provider, which is exactly what this man was doing. He stepped into his own provision and said, this is who I am and this is what I have. I cannot take hold of this woman. She's from a different country. I would squander my own inheritance. See, he didn't have eyes to see what was available to him. He had no idea that Ruth had already given herself to the threshing floor. She had already taken on Naomi's God as her own. She had already suggested that her people were her own. She had already subjected herself to the ways of God. But he didn't know that because he didn't have eyes to see. There's a difference between good and God. And now, by now, we should know that on the threshing floor, that's what he's doing. He's removing the grain that can withstand the engulfing flame of Holy Spirit from the shaft that just needs to be burned up. Yeah. Um, in the footnote, Brian Simmons writes, Boaz mentioned the land, the field, before he mentioned Ruth, the treasure. Boaz was not afraid to pay the price to acquire both the field and the treasure. If you think for one second that God will be satisfied with only a portion of you, you have misunderstood who he is. He's not just after what he can get out of you. He's wanting to bring forth the treasure. I want to tell you something that happened. I already told you that I taught this on Friday. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, you can go back and watch it. It's still up. But no sooner had I finished teaching, I went upstairs and I saw Autumn sitting outside and I had my coffee. Of course, I had to microwave it because it was cold. What, what I need us to understand is like how serious God is right now. 
So I'm sitting there with Autumn, and we're just enjoying the weather because it was beautiful out. And the dogs were running about because she had Django over, and they're just crazy when they're together, Uncle Shane and Django. And they're in the woods. And they don't normally stay in the woods, but they were in the woods, and they were in there for some time. And then all of a sudden, Bambi came running out of the woods. Little, 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 just a little baby. And Autumn and I are like, whoa, that's so cool. Totally forgetting that there's two dogs still in the yard. And, and Bambi ran across the yard right in front of us and then ran over to try and jump over the fence. I'm still, it's not clicking that Bambi feels like Bambi's in danger. And she's trying to jump, he, she, whatever, and then runs down the fence line to the very back of the yard and back across and into the woods. And I thought, oh, no, that's when it clicked. We're in trouble. This is not okay. And you could hear from clear to the very back of the yard, and it's like just over two acres. You could just hear the rustling and the trees and all the things, and you could just, it was awful. By, by that time, John's and Robin's mom had come outside to see Bambi because we were excited that there was a baby deer in the yard. And it was nothing but, it was a violent scene. Bambi got got, but in the middle of this moment, it was, it was awful. I'm not going to go into the details. Bambi's alive. Bambi lived. So don't worry for all of you that are really worried about that. Bambi's alive because our dog is old and has very few teeth. <laughs> but my point in bringing the story up is that in the middle of it all, God says to me, it's like, I'm the kinsman redeemer who sleeps on the threshing floor to protect you. And even when something cute comes running out of the woods, I will fiercely protect you from it because I know what I have deposited in you. And I know the gold that I'm trying to bring out. And I will not allow anything good or cute to run interference. He's serious right now. He's the protector. He's the one who's sleeping on the threshing floor. Protecting what is his. He's fiercely protecting what is his. And he will gobble up and swallow up anything that is good if it's going to run interference in what it is that he's trying to bring about in us. It was the most horrific thing that I've seen in a long time that was going on in this yard and in the middle of it all. God's going, I want you to understand that's what I'm doing. See, we are so enthralled with this, that, and the other thing. We love to be distracted. We love it. Because you know what? It keeps us from fulfilling the word of the Lord. Because that's going to cost us everything. And we don't want to pay the price. And he's over it. So he's brought us to the threshing floor to separate the grain from what was good enough. And he's going to fiercely protect what is his. 
And if you don't understand his love, go and read Song of Songs 8 to better familiarize yourself with what his love actually is. It's unquenchable. It's an unquenchable fire. It is like a raging water. There's nothing that can actually put his love out. That is, that is beyond what we can comprehend, you guys. His love is violent. He will destroy anything that is getting in his way. And here's the deal. Like, I know what it is that he is wanting to do. I've seen it. He has shown me. And I'm not sure we're ready. Because I'm not sure we're really capable of counting the cost. I'm not even sure that we're willing to say yes to him right now. We're still just okay with being good. And he's after something much more than that. Will you become the treasure that he sees? Will you become the word rather than just hearing the word and setting it aside? We, we love playing church. But it's not what he wants. He's after a bride. It's a bride he's after. You know what he said to me earlier this week? I was kind of whining. And he says, Angie, I don't ask you to get up and teach on Sunday mornings for anyone in the room. Because right now, we're clearing the atmosphere. So I don't care if there's not a single person in the room. And boy, was that put to the test this morning. First, it was just my family, Cleta and Lisa. And Lucas, I got you. And I thought, you were serious. He doesn't care who's in the room right now. I hope that maybe you gained something. I'm hoping that you're taking this seriously, but it's actually not about you because right now he's clearing the way. He's making way. He's making way for something glorious, something that is beyond us, something that we cannot control. And we love control. <sighs> if I had not had eyes to see in the backyard on Friday morning, It would have been a completely different way of viewing what was taking place. I had eyes to see what it was that he was doing, and I had ears to hear because I am becoming something. I'm becoming his word. Now, I want to share something with you. I wasn't sure I was going to do this, but I just really think that I need to do this. And so I want to share something that happened with you. Let me open it up, though. I, I want to make sure that that I, I don't add to it and I don't take away from it because I just feel like it's important to honor the way that we hear things. Since Sunday, I'm going to take you back to Sunday because on Sunday, we had second church in the basement. If you weren't here, I'm sorry about it. But we did. We had second church in the basement and it was better than first church. I don't know. Maybe hang around. 
It was actually just accidental. We had sweet little Virginia was asking, if you haven't met Virginia, she's the older lady that comes in with Pepper and Jonathan. And she's 91, guys. She's a doll. But listen, don't misunderstand Virginia. (laughs) She is like nothing but power up in those 85 pounds. But so she comes to me and she's like, Honey, I sure would. And she can't even get very many words out before she throws her hands up in the air. And she just begins worshiping. And she does that with her face. She scrunches it up and it's like she's trying to hold back the, like there's joy and there's, there's tears together. I don't know how to explain it other than that. There's just a whole lot of emotion that's on it and she's got both hands and she's just, ah, oh, you can tell she can feel the presence and the invitation to go further. And she says to me, I sure would like prayer for some of that fire. And on, my honest to God response inside was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, are you asking that of me? Cause I don't really know. <laughs> and so I continued my conversation with Pepper because I wasn't really sure how to handle what was being asked of me. Can I just be honest? about that? Can we give up our professional Christianity for a moment and realize that we don't know what we're doing? I certainly did not know what I was doing, but the whole time I'm sitting there talking to Pepper, it was a beautiful conversation, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, how are we doing this? You know, I got very robotic. I don't know how to offer her more fire. Um, and so, so then Lisa came and she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go now. And I thought, no, you're not. <laughs> and I just asked her, I was like, um, do you need to go? Or are you just going? She's like, what? <laughs> and I was like, well, see, the deal is, is that Virginia's downstairs and she was wanting prayer. And I wondered if you want in. And she's like, oh, yeah, I want in. So we go downstairs to the basement and Virginia, cute as can be, is just sitting on the couch. And, and um, after, you know, a short little meaningless conversation, we're like, well, should we pray? so weird we're so weird and so she's like yes (laughs) because she just goes in and out in and out I mean like it's just like this constant space of praise that she's in it's just beautiful to me and and so we all we all stand up like we're gonna gather around in our little kumbaya circle and we're gonna call down fire or whatever it is that we do as Christians and she just starts in like I'm like, okay, like, you know, you do in double dutch where you're like, okay, I'm going, I'm going, if you don't jump rope, I'm sorry, but this is how you do it. You know, there's like this, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And and that's where my mind was at. I was like looking for the right opportunity for the water to be warm to go in. Not Virginia. See, she carries the water and it's already warm. (laughs) And she just dove in and she began to worship the Lord right there in that moment. And I was like, okay. We're doing this now, and I think then I received some fire. And and then, I don't know, you guys, it was just like this, this prophetic thing just came. I mean, I kind of live there anyway, but this was, this was better. There was more that was available. And so we spent, I don't even know, I, John, I'm sure could tell you how long we were down there, but 45 minutes, okay. And we just spent time just like ministering to one another. And it was absolutely beautiful and powerful. And it was like putting 
the word to the test that the anointing really does break the bonds. And it's not the anointing that comes out of me and touches you and breaks the bonds. No, it's the anointing that comes out of you that breaks your own bonds. It's true. It really does happen that way. And so that put me in this, like, I just kept calling it a prophetic stupor because that's just where I was all week. I was just kind of like in this space where I'm like, I'm here, but I'm not. I'm just kind of off in Wonderland or something. I don't know. I just, I felt just so, what's the word? Taken, you know? And so on Tuesday, I was, I was almost agitated in earthly space, just feeling super restless and like, ah, like I don't want to be here. And I just, I, I knew that there was something that, that God was pulling me. He was wanting me to see something. And so finally, I was like, because I kept trying to read my Bible. I kept, you know, all the things that we do. And so I went up, up and outstairs, outside, and I sat on the front porch. And I wasn't out there very long before an encounter started happening. And I, I'm sitting there, and and I'm like, God, I don't know how to partner with you. I, I feel greatness all around me. I feel this weightiness that there's something happening, but I can't quite figure out what it is. And I don't know how to step into it. So I'm like, how do I partner with you? How do I, how do I know what it is that you're doing? Or what is your blessing on right now? And he says to me, and I don't interact with angels. I wish I did. I just, it's not, it's not my thing yet. But he says, Angie, there's an angel standing right on the other side of the side, sidewalk. And it's as tall as the trees. And, and that was kind of, that was it. And I was like, noted. It was just kind of, I guess, to know. I, I didn't feel anything. Still just kind of like in this, like, feeling annoyed. And, and then... A turkey vulture starts headed right for the front of the house and like skimming the tops of the trees. It was low. And, and then it's kind of like circled there for a little while. And I was really paying attention to it. It felt important to pay attention to it. And, and then it left. But what was also going on was, you know, the little cotton tufts that come from the cottonwood trees. Oh my gosh, love cottonwood trees. I mean, I think they're the reason why I'm all stuffed up and my throat hurts right now, but I love them. And I love the cotton that comes from it. I mean, it really looked like a flurry of snow going by, but there was something so sweet about it being like soft and cottony. So that was going on too. And there was a lot of it. And I'm still just taking notice of the things. And then all of a sudden, and this all happened in a, a short span of time, I think, and three turkey vultures are coming straight at the, the house in the same way that the one did. And I thought, okay, I realize that turkey vultures are pretty common around here, but this seemed like something was actually taking place. And at that point, I heard him say, pay attention. And I was. It's like, you have my attention. And they start circling around 
the front yard and he starts talking to me about rejection and how rejection came and took root in our Western world. That rejection by way of war, by way of how we have mishandled one another, how we have created division in our culture, that rejection came and took root. And there was one thing that he said that was just so prominent, and it was a great and mighty orphanage has been built on the undercurrents of separation in this culture. A great and mighty orphanage has been built on the undercurrents of separation in our culture. And we call it church. So those three turkey vultures left. And not long after that, five of them came and were doing the exact same thing. And it was as if they were circling around on the rim of a cylinder. And I knew, I just knew that, you know, sometimes you can hear the Lord and sometimes you just know what it is that he's getting at. And I could feel, it was as if I was in his voice. And I knew that the five turkey vultures represented the fivefold that we know full well God is raising up and is very serious about right now. He's bringing better definition to our understanding of the fivefold. And, and the five turkey vultures are representing the government of the church. See, he's done with the orphanage, right? And he's done with separation, right? Because we are indivisible. And it was interesting that they're circling around on what felt like the rim of these cylinders. Because I think that through these cylinders that they were circling from were actually like funnels that he was releasing great healing through. And this is what he was telling me. He was talking to me about oneness. And you know that oneness is my favorite topic. Jesus oneness, right? I love the idea of oneness. I love it that that's what we've been called to. I love Jesus' prayer in John 17 where he's talking, Father, like we have it for them. Same. Indivisible. Right? And he says, what I am releasing is healing for any disease that is the body attacking the body. He started talking to me about wanting to heal autoimmune diseases, healing cancers, healing self-harm, and bringing healing to the epidemic of suicide. And what he was explaining to me is that what is manifesting in the individual bodies is the picture of the way the church has been practicing being the church, an orphanage built on the undercurrents of separation. And he said, enough is enough. And then it was fun because I wanted him to say, this means war, because that was where I got really fast. I get militant kind of fast. And I'm like, let's just be violent. He's like, it's open season. It's 
open season on autoimmune diseases, on cancer, on self-harm, and on suicide. And I don't know if you're paying attention to the medical world, but autoimmune diseases are kind of rampant right now. And, and as the gates... The church is the gates between the kingdom and the earth, right? We know that. We know we've been set up as the gates. We've allowed this to manifest on the earth because of our willingness to treat one another in separation rather than seeing one another as indivisible. And so he's, he's going to be bringing a manifest, manifestation of oneness that we have not seen we love reading the stories in Acts, right? We love this. We love the story of Acts. We love the story about how they had everything in common and not one of them went without. But we don't really fully appreciate what it is that he's talking about. This wasn't just neighbor to neighbor sharing eggs. It was what I carry, you get to carry. And I don't have the right language to make that sound freely and pretty. I don't. But what I know is that what I carry, you have access to if you're willing to be indivisible. And that's what he's after. He's after oneness. And that none of us would be suffering. that we would all have plenty. The sign of what he's doing in his body will be that cancers begin to be healed, that autoimmune diseases begin to be healed, and that suicide stops. He's serious about oneness too. Just as serious as he is about the threshing floor, he's serious about oneness. And my big question is, do you want to be a part of it? It's a great and mighty, great and mighty healing movement that is being released. Do you want to be a part of it? We sit around and talk about, oh, just really want to see this and that and everything else. I want to see people whole. And trust me, in the middle of it all, I stopped myself and I thought, is that just my desire speaking? Because I have a kid with an autoimmune disease. I have a father-in-law with an autoimmune disease. Do I just want to see this? And I'm like causing, no. He's a good father. And he, he's serious about oneness. And so, of course, he's going to give a sign for the church to follow because that's what he was doing in Acts also. He did all the things that he did as a sign of what it was that he was doing. Let me check my notes to make sure I didn't miss anything. 
Oh, I, I know. I, I brought the cotton up for a reason. And it was because, so back to the vultures. What do vultures do? They eat dead things. Do you remember the story that we were reading in Second Samuel 24, where it was the angel of death that came and took care of business? Interesting. And now God is sending scavenger angels in to take care of business, to take care of the dead things, the things that no longer serve us. Wow. But at the same time, he's seeding it. It's the same thing. It's the same thing in the story in Amos, where in chapter nine, I love this, love this, love this, where it says that the plowman will overcome the reaper, that it will be at the same time. You will be, you will be seeding and harvesting at the same time. Same, same time. This isn't going to be a prolonged thing. Where it's like, okay, well, we planted the seed. Now our children's children's children will get to reap the benefits of that. No. It's at the same time. He's doing things quickly. He's seeding righteousness at the same time that he's removing death. He's creating space for what it is that he's wanting manifest on the earth. And it's absolutely thrilling for me to consider So we have to understand that things are happening quickly now. I just told you that I just finished my teaching on Friday and then the thing happened in the backyard. That was fast. I'm not used to things happening that fast, but I was kind of like absolutely jolted by the whole thing. And then yesterday, like I told you, we're sitting here and John and I are just exchanging knowledge about the threshing floor and an angel flurries across the room, whatever they do. I don't really know. I don't have the proper angel lingo. I just know that things are happening fast. But it takes us having eyes to see, to become the word of the Lord rather than just setting it aside and pompously announcing that I heard the Lord. Like, let's stop that. Become the word of the Lord. And you will see. When we put it on, then we have eyes to see. Right? I really do believe that we are on a launching pad right now. That we are about to take off. But also remember that this isn't necessarily just about you because we are clearing the land. We're clearing the land. For God to be able to come in and do what it is that he wants to do. Will you stand? I don't really want to lead you in prayer. What I want is for you to submit yourself to the violent protector that is the Lion of Judah. I want you to see yourself on the threshing floor, and I want you to submit yourself to the Lion. And I want you to count the cost. Will you buy 
the space to become the offering. Will you become the word of the Lord? I think that it would be better for you not to hear the word of the Lord at all if you're not willing to become it. Holy Spirit, consume us. We yield to you. Amen. Vince. Well, that was really good. There was a lot in that. And so I would encourage you to go back and rewatch that. Or by midday tomorrow, it'll be up on the podcast and you can listen to it if you prefer that. Um, there was a lot in there. There's a lot uh, you should go back and listen to. A lot of prophetic words released today. We're about to go into worship, and there is a, a couple of different ways to worship. One of those being what we do with music, and another one is with giving. Giving is a form of worship. And one of the things that uh, that struck me this week was I, I listened to something and uh, the man was talking about the cap that we put on ourselves with a lot of different things, with, with worship, uh, how we've seen uh, worship done, how we've seen giving done, how we've seen life done. And we'll uh, a lot of times go to that point of what we've seen put on display as an example by our parents, people in the church, whatever that is. But today I want you to go beyond that. I want you to go deeper into intimacy with him. Because what's going to happen when you go deeper into that intimacy is you're going to bring the fullness of who you are and what you carry into oneness with everyone else. And we all get to benefit from that. I had a great picture about, about worship. And you, you'll hear Angie a lot of times talk about ascribing worth to Jesus. Give to him what is due. right? Give him that worship. And the picture was interesting because um, some of you may or may not get this, but I'm kind of a Star Wars geek. I love Star Wars movies. So in the original Star Wars movie, has anybody not seen the original one? You haven't? You're going to need to watch the very last scene in the movie. The very last scene is there's this big formation of people all in perfect lines and rows. And walking down the aisle is Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Chewbacca coming in as the conquering heroes. And Princess Leia is up there dressed in her royal robes waiting to give them medals, waiting to give them honor. And a lot of times we want to put ourselves in the place of the conquering hero. But in this picture, the conquering hero coming down the aisle is the Trinity. It's Jesus there. Returning as a conquering hero. And the, the, the thing that really got me even more emotional about this picture was 
picturing us as the royal ones waiting to ascribe worth and give glory to the conquering heroes. Your royalty. Give him your very best. Go deeper into intimacy with him in worship, in giving, in living your life. Because all of those things, when you bring them, makes everyone around you better. Right? We get strength in our oneness. This community here gets to strengthen each other. So it's open season. It's open season on not just autoimmune disease, cancer, suicide, debt, poverty, orphan spirit. You need breakthrough? Do something about it. Take a step. If you need breakthrough in finances, give. See what happens. You need breakthrough in health? Pray for somebody to be healed. Feeling alone? Step into community. Press in to people. Go deeper in your worship today. See what happens. Test it out. Put the medal on Jesus today. He's the conquering hero, right? Ascribe worth to him as you go into worship. All right, before John gets that going, if you'd like to give cash, Lucas is going to come around with a uh, basket. If you'd like to give online, you can do that at uneditedlife.org. And there's a little give button in the lower right-hand corner. For everyone online, we thank you for being here with us and worshiping with us today. And uh, get on YouTube, whatever your favorite music player is, put some worship on and have a party with him right now. All right.